We've reached the end of our liturgical celebration and reflection on the resurrection and ascension of Christ our Lord. And now we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This gift of the Spirit was a fulfillment of the promise of Christ to guide and power his church. But like the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit loses its meaning apart from the resurrection of Jesus and our own bodily resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul add, addressed this question, but particularly how the resurrection of Christ changed his own life and therefore why he believed it should change ours. Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. <clears throat> Welcome to Deep in Scripture. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to join you. You can, um, you can catch this program also on the Internet if you go to www.deepinscripture.com. Uh, if you were looking right now, for example, you'd see Dr. Howell looking like uh, a mafioso with his black shirt, and you would see me <laughs> looking like Ben Matlock on TV with my suspenders. But uh, we're just a couple old guys that love Jesus Christ and his word, and uh, we're gathered to share that with you. Uh, next week, just to let you know, the, we're going to do something different. <clears throat> We've, we'll have finished the... Uh, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> what we're going to do next week is answer emails that we've received as a result of our program. We'd always love to hear from you. So if you were to like to send us an email with any questions about the scriptures we've been looking at or the topics that have come up, you can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And we'd also love to have you follow us at uh, the CH Network Facebook page or on Twitter at CH Network. So, Ken, once again, thank you for uh, being able to join me on, on Deep in Scripture. Um, thank you. Good to be here. And uh, just in case someone hasn't been following along and this is their first time tuning in, the last month or so uh, since Easter, we've been uh, studying 1 Corinthians 15 as one long chapter but a unique chapter in the corpus of the writings of St. Paul and in this book itself. So maybe as an overview, Ken, why is this particular chapter 15 so important? Well, there's, Marcus, there's a word that Paul uses at the very beginning of chapter 15. Uh, it's the word euangelion in Greek. He says, I now remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you. Paul is proclaiming in the entire New Testament, all of his letters, what the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Now, he does that in, in 1 Corinthians uh, in a way that's uh, more marked, more, more obvious in a way because uh, 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth was in big trouble when Paul wrote this letter to them. And you'll notice if you read through 1 Corinthians very carefully, there's all kinds of problems that Paul is dealing with. And in chapter 15, right toward the end of this letter, he comes to one of the biggest problems of all, and that is the denial of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and of our resurrection. So chapter 15 is addressing the question, is it important to believe in the resurrection? And Paul has uh, no, no uncertainty about the answer to that. 
he says, now, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. So Christianity, Catholicism, uh, it means nothing without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul has been, Paul in this whole chapter, and it is a long chapter, as we've been looking at different parts of it, um, he's been arguing very, very uh, carefully and logically that uh, the resurrection is the centerpiece of our Christian faith, precisely because Christ's death um, paid for our sins upon the cross, but it was his resurrection that brought him, brought him back to life and brought us to life and brings us ultimately to eternal life with God. So, if there is no resurrection, Paul says, we are of all men more to be pitied. We are the most pitiable men on the face of the earth uh, because uh, we believe in a myth. But so Paul is, uh, is trying to emphasize, no, this is not a myth. This is a reality. And the question we're going to deal with today, beginning in verse 35, you might say is the how question, the scientific question, how are the dead raised? Is it helpful, Ken, to remember that here we are 2,000 years later and we have <clears throat> a lot of theological fine-tuning under our belts from 2,000 years of of theologians and bishops and priests uh, arguing out and fine-tuning our understanding of the faith, whereas when Paul's writing this, <clears throat> he's writing to first-generation Christians who, even though our Lord uh, delivered the deposit of faith to the apostles and then they passed it on, yet there was still a, a learning of well, what are these implications? Uh, imagine yourself believing on the one hand in the resurrection of the dead, the body, mm -hmm. uh, but this is the first generation of folk. And so they're wondering, mm -hmm. well, when is Christ coming again? We see many evidences of the early, uh, in the early church writers and in the New Testament that their question was, well, is he coming in our lifetime? And then part of the problem is with them expecting uh, this resurrection, um, <clears throat> uh, the second coming of Christ, and also what does this resurrection mean? At the same time, there are people dropping off right and left as they're getting older, or whatever's happening, and it's oh no, what mm -hmm. does this mean? You know, my, you know, my yeah. uncle Tilly, uh, my, my uncle Tilly, my, my aunt Tilly died. Uh, <laughs> and she was one of the first believers in Christ here in our church, and now she's died. And what does this mean, Paul? Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. And so one of the ways to reconstruct the uh, objections that Paul is dealing with here is that people were saying things like, well, the resurrection must be of a spiritual nature, not of a physical nature. And so Paul goes about uh, to answer that. Um, he the, the other objection or problem that could have been dealt with here is, well, if Aunt Tilly died, then maybe there's no hope for her. Because the resurrection is going to happen when Jesus comes. And this is what Paul is dealing with in chapter 15, verse 20, when he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those that sleep or those that have fallen asleep. And remember last week we talked about the fact that to speak of death as sleep was a more or less uniquely Christian way of thinking about it such that the word cemetery comes from a Greek word koimeterion, which means the place of sleeping, not the place of final death, 
but the place of sleeping. So Paul's trying to give them hope that, yes, their, res- their, their beloved relatives who have died and passed on, they too will be resurrected. And we'll see that today in the very final section of this, of this chapter. All right, Ken, we're going to look today at verses 35 through 58. And let me say that it's a long section, so I'm not going to read that here on the radio. Encourage you, if you want, you can go to www.deepinscripture.com and you can see a copy of the notes that Ken and I are looking at in front of us. You can follow along if you'd like, or of course, open up your own scriptures. Uh, but basically, this, on the one hand, he's dealing with a theological question that is posed by someone in verse 35. Paul quotes the possibility that someone might ask, well, wait, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It was a good question, an honest question. Uh, And I'm guessing that is a question now 2,000 years that still floats around. And in fact, the catechism recognizes in point 1000 in the Catholic Catechism, that this how of the resurrected body exceeds our imagination and understanding. It is accessible only to faith. And so, you know, it's not that Ken and I all of a sudden have got got the clear answer and we're going to clear everything up for all time here on our radio program. We're recognizing it's a mystery that Paul then proceeds in this chapter to use reason, to use examples, common sense, to demonstrate actually from what Christ often does, looking at nature and and looking at the, as St. Bonaventure would say, the vestiges of the... uh, of the reality of God's work in the world around us to see examples for our own understanding of of the resurrection. And so he builds that argument in the coming verses. And let me give you a heads up, though, before I, I, I turn this over to Ken, is that this is far more than merely theological, because he's going to end up in verse 58 with a very, very practical mm-hmm. point of all of this chapter, everything he said in this chapter, is not merely for theologizing. It has to do with the crucialness of whether or not this resurrection is, in fact, our destiny. All right, Ken. Well, it seems to me, Marcus, that um, you've already pointed us in a very important direction here. Um, In verses 35 through um, 41, you have the first subsection of this in which he talks about sowing and reaping. And the sowing and reaping is that the body that's going to be reaped, as it were, at the end of the world is the resurrected body. The sowing that we sow now, he says in verse 37, you're not sowing that future body, you're just putting the seeds in the ground. And then he goes on to talk about, because he's answering this question, well, what kind of body? are we going to be resurrected with? That's the question he asked back in verse 35. What what kind of body do they have? Well, <clears throat> the answer he gives in verses 39 is that it's going to be a unique kind of body. When he talks in verse 39, he says, not all flesh is the same kind of flesh, 
men have a flesh, <coughs> animals have a kind of flesh, birds have a flesh, fish have a flesh. It's worth thinking for just a moment, I was translating that rather literally, when he talks about flesh, because he's talking, we wouldn't use the word flesh in English to describe what a bird has, right? We'd say they had feathers and, and skin under there. So the word flesh that he's using here has a wider meaning than it does in English, right? Now, the, but the point that he's saying is that if you look out in the natural world, you can see the kinds of differences that are out there between different species of, of animals and, and uh, birds and fish and so forth. Well, it's the same way with regard to the difference between our present body and the heavenly body, as he calls it in verse uh, 40. Now, he speaks about heavenly bodies, and he means by that the bodies of planets and so forth, the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of the, of the stars. They're not all the same, right? In other words, there's a great diversity within the natural world. And that diversity is indicative, Paul is saying, of the difference between our present body and our future body. Now, he hasn't exactly said what that body is going to be like yet. Yep. But he's just saying that there's going to be a great difference. Don't expect this to be just a simple transition with a little bit of you know, resurrection power added on the end of your present life. It's going to be a radically different kind of life. Ken, I was, gonna, tra- I was just going to jump in there in your little thought because I know you, you a, a great interest of yours is this interest, the science and religion mm-hmm. and the connection between faith and reason. And so as you've just demonstrated, he's pointing out what is obvious to anyone that looks at nature, that there is diversity. Mm-hmm. There's great diversity. Now, isn't it true, Ken, that there are scientists, there have been people that will look at that creation and see diversity, yet in that diversity, seeing a a unity, a commonality, a flow in that diversity, and yet in the end will not see God as the cause of that diversity or that unity. So my only reason bringing that up, Ken, is that I don't think Paul here is trying to give a scientific argument for the resurrection body. He's just opening their eyes no. to no, the diversity true. that is yeah. there all around us, which illustrates the creativity and the awesomeness of God. Well, this is a very important point I think you're making because I have a friend uh, right now who's writing a very, I think, good book about this question of, uh, he's a biologist, and it's a question about the diversity of nature yet it said the unity of the underlying laws of nature but at the same time he's pointing out that in people that are trained in the sciences unfortunately become scientistic and that's different than being scientific Mm. scientific is to be empirical but scientistic is to believe that everything just reduces down to the physical level there's no spiritual reality at all and he's arguing against this and one of the things that he points out is how many scientists in their almost religious fervor for materialism end up denying the essential differences that there are. So what Paul is saying here is important. There's real differences between birds and fish, right? It's it's common sense. If you just look out into the world, you see that. Well, there's actually a real bit of difference between being a chimpanzee and being a human. But you'd be amazed how many people 
think that there's very little difference between a chimpanzee and a human when there are great differences. One of them is demonstrated by what we're doing right here and now. We're having a rational conversation. And whether you're told this or not, chimpanzees just can't do that. (laughs) So so you see that, that you're absolutely right. In other words, look at common sense experience of the world. What does it tell you? It tells you that there's different types of species and genera out there in the world. And these things are pointing us to the possibility of a radically different kind of body in the resurrection. So then with that uh, background tying into their common experience, Paul moves in verse 42 to then make some conclusions to, to, to draw them to uh, to take this diversity that they see that is understandable and then make some just very common sense observations. Mm. Yeah, he what, what Paul does in verses 42, really up through about 49, I think is the next uh, major section. He gives us a number of contrasts. Look at verse 42. He says that the, the body, that one body is sown in corruption but another one, but it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, that's because of sin, but it's raised in glory because we'll be without sin. I'm adding the words there, but I think that's the meaning behind it. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Verse 44 is particularly interesting. It's sown in the version that we have in front of us today, and I think it's the uh, Revised Standard. Yeah, Mm -hmm. It says it's, it's sown a physical body, it's raised a spiritual body. And the Greek text here uses the word psukikos or psukikon. It's a psukikon body. That's related to, that's the adjective related to the word psuche, which means the soul. But it's not used in the way that we Christians use the soul today. What it's talking about is a earthly kind of soul. And actually, Aristotle was very wise in talking about the different parts of the soul. Some, uh, we have, for example, a soul like an animal has because we can sense things like by f- through the five senses, and cats and dogs can do that. What they can't do is they can't go to the rational level above that and use that sense information to do rational thought. So Paul here is saying, and, and I don't think it's just that he's using the word physical. He's talking about that we have an earthly body. And so he says that in verse 47, right? The first man, that is Adam, was from the earth. He was, and I like the new, the new revised standard. It uses the word made of dust, right? Just like it says in Genesis, he was made from the dust of the ground. The second man was from heaven. As there was an earthly man, so there, such, and there are earthly people, so there's a heavenly man and there will be heavenly people. So Paul's drawing on this contrast that's so central to all of salvation history that Christ, uh, that Adam was the first man, Christ is the last man. Adam was the progenitor of the human race, Christ is the progenitor of the redeemed race. That includes hopefully all mankind, but but uh, we shall see. So the though the contrast here that he's making is both has continuity and discontinuity. In other words, the body is going to, it's going to be our body. In other words, I'm going to be able to look at you, Marcus, and say, oh, that's Marcus. I knew him, you know, when we were on earth, when we're in heaven. But at the same time, you'll be so gloriously different. 
because you'll be fully indwelt by Christ in the Spirit. And your body will be, well, who knows what it'll be like, but maybe it'll be shining forth in light or something glorious about you. <laughs> you know, this again, it's a mystery. Paul's doing the best thing he can. Even, uh, even though he admits in one of his letters, um, though he doesn't claim it's himself, but he, know, he talks about knowing somebody who in the spirit, you know, yeah. uh, you know, had this, this spiritual experience of heaven. Um, he, he's recognizing on the one hand it's a mystery, but yet it is very, very important for us to understand this. And writers throughout history have tried to address the mystery of the differences between this earthly body created in dust and how different it will be from our spiritual body. And, and it reminds me of, of C.S. Lewis uh, trying to do this description in his wonderful book, The Great Divorce, um, where the, the men on the bus traveling up from hell to pay their little visit in heaven, um, their feet hurt because they, their bodies that they have do not have enough reality to even bend a, a blade of grass <laughs> in the heavenly realm. I don't know if Ken, if you remember that from that wonderful yeah, book. No, that, that escapes me. No, well, he's a great. He talks about. It's a good story. Yeah, they they get out of the bus and when they land in in heaven for their little bus ride. And of course, they they're just whining and complaining because they're from hell. But uh, you know, they go take one guy leaves the bus and goes running off into heaven, and it hurts. He tries to walk on the into a brook, and, he, and of course he's walking on water because his body can't break the, the realness of the water in heaven, and so he's washed away and it hurts in his shin. I mean, so C.S. Lewis is trying to show that there's a mysterious yet almost as different as Christ, as God is from us, is mm -hmm. a difference between yeah. our spiritual body and us. And that makes perfect sense because we have two problems. One is that God is a spiritual being and we're physical beings. And so it's very difficult for us to uh, comprehend and sometimes believe that there could be a pure spiritual being out there. Just like it's hard for people to believe in angels who are pure spirits. But the second problem is that we're our minds are darkened by moral turpitude or moral by sin. In other words, and, and you know, after teaching many years in colleges, I've come to realize this, that the, the problem with people not believing is often not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. And by that, I mean is that you can have all the intellectual ability to pursue the argument, but if you don't have the moral courage to go where it leads you, then you you're you're, sty you're stymied. You're not. You can't go any farther in the the journey of life and the the journey of truth. Well, clearly Paul was not that kind of man. He was a man who uh, pushed, as it were, who pushed the envelope of of truth and and even if it led him to the mystery, which I think is what's happening here in chapter fifteen, he is at the edge of of our ability as human beings uh, to understand. The one that you, you've given a beautiful literary illustration of that with, um, with C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. 
Uh, if you think of it, um, maybe there's another way to understand it too. Very few of us, I think, um, ever think about um, the fact that we know that things exist, but we don't know what they are. Now, here's an example. I've never written out uh, the number Google. Now, probably most young people think of Google as something <laughs> you use on a computer, right? But Google, of course, is a number. But I've never actually written it out. And then, of course, I know that there are, uh, you know, an infinite number of numbers beyond Google. I've never written them out. That is that I don't know how they are, but I know that they are. And that's what Paul is saying here, is that we know that there is this resurrected body. We can speculate about it. We know based upon Christ and Adam, it must be true, and it must be a body beyond our wildest dreams. But exactly the nature of that body uh, that we could study in a laboratory? Absolutely not. It's impossible to know that. So he's using the visible, sensual data that is available to try and help his audience, his first-generation right. Christian audience, to understand this mystery and, um, you know, even the diversity that is found in the real world is not enough to demonstrate the unique diversity between our physical bodies and our spiritual bodies. So in verse 20, <clears throat> in a way, he, 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 he brings it down to the bedrock fact when he says in verse 50, I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does mm -hmm. the perishable inherit the imperishable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there with the diversity, but he just he, the, the bottom fact is that what he's saying is that the, this mystery requires a change in us, mm -hmm. both what God will do after our death, but also now. Because... As Christ has said in, the, in all the things that he says, that the, the, the eternal life that we will receive is a future and a now. It's a reality yeah. now. And so it's it isn't just now. that, well, when I die, I'm going to get this new body that I live with, is that he's calling us to change now. It, well, that's so, what Paul, I, well, that's what Paul means in Romans 6 when he speaks about living the resurrection life now, not just in the future. All right, well, let's pause there, Ken. Uh, we'll come okay. back to that when we get back here. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi with Dr. Kenneth Howell, and you're hearing us through the studio at Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us. We'll be with you in just a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link 
at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus as he welcomes former pastor of the Reformed Church of America, Cliff Pajama. See how his theological studies led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am joined by co-host Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. We're dealing with the mystery of the resurrected body. And, uh, of course, we're doing this on, uh, on Pentecost weekend. So we, we've had this reflection of the resurrection of our Lord through this whole season of Easter. We celebrated his ascension. And then now is the, the reception of the gift of his spirit. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's already dealt with the issue of the gift of the spirit in chapter 12 and then 13, 14, 15, and all that issues of the problems uh, that um, understanding the gift of the spirit in that church. But he's also in then this chapter 15 dealing with confusion about what about the people that's died? People that believed in Jesus, they've, they've died. What's happened? We, they're in the catacombs or wherever they are. You know, their bodies are there rotting away. But what's happened? What about the promises of Christ? Um, so he's tried to address this issue in verse 35. There's the question. And then verses 36 through 49, he, he, he shows using the best data that is available uh, for many of these former pagans. The best data in our world to show the diversity and the unity of this wonderful creation that God has given to us to demonstrate. You know, a seed is different than an oak tree. There's great diversity, but yet there's unity. And so the the unity between our physical perishable body and then the new body we will have upon resurrection is a great mystery, but is a great foundation of our truth. But it requires a change, not just what God will do after our resurrection, but also now, because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, and so we must be changed. And there we have the whole gospel message. And then he proceeds in verse 51 through 57 to draw conclusions from from what he has tried to draw their attention to in the reality of diversity and unity in creation, the need for this change, but he, he, he draws it more, um, that this perishable nature must not, must put on the imperishable. This mortal nature that we now live in must put on immortality. All right, Ken. Well, it seems to me that, that that 
radical difference that you're that you're talking about. You emphasized earlier when you said in verse fifty that Paul states categorically, flesh and blood will not inherit the king cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption uh, inherit incorruption. So that as we were saying earlier, we have we have a twofold problem. We have the problem that the resurrection and eternal life and union with God, participation in God, these things are all beyond our human ability. We need God's condescending love and revelation to to get us there. Uh, but at the same time, <clears throat> Paul is also emphasizing uh, that the problem is even worse than that because of sin. That is, we don't have an inclination to move toward God without him first moving uh, toward us. But in this last section of the chapter, this is, that is verses 50 through 58 particularly, um, he is now he's saying in no uncertain terms that the hope of the Christian is inviolable. It will not ever be in question. That is, we shall not all sleep, verse 51, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. Uh, at the very beginning, it says in verse 52, at a moment, I suppose the Greek word in atomo means, uh, we, we get the word atom from that. It means the, the uncut thing in the very least moment. I guess we'd have to say now in today's world in a nanosecond. Um, <laughs> that is to say, you, this is in this split moment, the split second, the dead are going to be raised. Now, if you just try to envision what that event is going to be like, <laughs> it is overwhelming to think that one day you'll be perhaps sitting somewhere doing something and the next moment it'll all end. It'll come dramatically to an end and life will be forever changed. And so <clears throat> he goes on in these verses then to say that corruption must put on incorruption as you quoted earlier. I love the quote that he gives from verse uh, from Isaiah 25. A death is swallowed up in victory. And then it's like a taunt. Oh, death, where is your victory? You know, oh, death, where is your sting? You know, now the sting of death is sin, he says. What does he mean by that? He means that that we feel closer to death when we sin. It stings us. It makes us like we're dead. And he means that in a moral sense, of course, but it can also have emotional uh, implications. And the strength of sin is the law. That's like he says in Romans 7 that, you know, I would not have known to do the, that it was wrong unless the law said don't do it. So what? So the law kind of is both good, but it also prompts me to do evil at times. So as I sin, then I get closer to death. But then he says the hope of Christ, the hope of the resurrection, is that death does not have the final victory. And that is because we are united to Christ. We are participating in his divine life. And it's important that as he draws to verse 58, he is going to say that, again, Ken, this is the importance of not taking any one section apart from the rest of Scripture, the rest of a, a book of the New Testament, away from the entire New Testament, apart from the full deposit of faith, because uh, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, that is a truth, but not as if it is a guarantee, not as mm -hmm. if, you know, a once saved, always saved, you know, now that I'm in Jesus, um, I have no fear 
of the future, well, in, in other words, it doesn't matter how I live because I've been guaranteed of this resurrection. Uh, because the context of the entire letter, as well as the other writings of Paul, emphasize that this is a hope, this is a promise, dependent on our uh, living in grace, in abiding in Christ. Yes, in our cooperation with God's grace, because if we don't cooperate with God's grace, His, his grace can't work in us. And that's, He respects our freedom of will precisely because He made us human. If he made us robots, well, then we wouldn't have freedom of will. But he didn't choose to make us that way. He chose to make us um, free beings. By the way, we should point out that we talked about before the break a little bit about looking out in nature and using our reason to see the diversity of things. But the same is true here about the freedom of the will, Marcus. If we don't have... The reason we have freedom of the will is because we're rational beings. Chimpanzees, monkeys, uh cicada chickens they don't have freedom of the will because they don't have rationality they don't have the ability to relate to something higher all they can do is sense things with their with their five senses you know sight seeing touch and so forth but we as human beings can reason beyond that and that's what gives us the freedom the will we can choose whether to eat an apple or orange or more seriously, whether to steal or not steal, or commit adultery or not commit adultery. We make choices, and that makes us moral beings. Um, and that's why we um, <clears throat> the idea that somehow our will is not involved, or rather that we have, I think the idea of the absolute assurance of salvation that people speak of often tries to el- eliminate the possibility that our will could be seriously damaged. Which it, which it is. Interestingly, Marcus, said, it's a little bit uh, um, off of our topic directly, but it might be worth valuable, worth pointing out that in this very same letter, Paul speaks about the possibility of the loss of salvation. When he says in chapter 9, <clears throat> he's talking about his, his ministry and running, as he says in chapter 9, verse 24, so as to win the prize. And then he goes on and he says that I'm running not as one who is, you know, as it were, beating the air, but I am subjecting my body and bringing it into a subjection. In other words, he's he's living a penitential life, lest, having preached to others, I myself might be unapproved. Now, think about those words. I preached this gospel to others, but then I myself am unapproved or disqualified, or rejected. So he, he's, he's living his life in a penitential way, he says in verse 27, because he doesn't want that possibility to come about. So when he's speaking about the certainty of the resurrection, the resurrection is certain. The question is whether we'll be a part of that or not. Whether our resurrection will be to eternal life or eternal death. Yeah, all will resurrect. Yeah, exactly. Everyone will right. resurrect. Uh, it's right. just where you will spend eternity with God. You know, there's a, a verse in the midst of this that kind of slips by, Ken, and I, I'm wondering if there's so much more, given what you drew us back to in chapter 9, that comes out, and that's in that, that little verse 36 of this chapter when Paul says, You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I mean, in a sense, isn't that the description of the whole spiritual life? 
of our obedience to Jesus Christ. It's mm-hmm. not merely that, you know, I, I, that I was baptized 62 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. that therefore I will be resurrected to eternal life because of that act or because I accepted Jesus at a, at a Methodist Bible camp back when I was nine years old. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that all these things are part of this journey, but it requires a continual dying. Uh, that's what baptism was. We, we, in baptism, we died to Christ, new life. When we accepted Jesus, that was a death. Every time we choose to be obedient to Christ and following grace, that's a death. Uh, every mm-hmm. time we forgive someone, that's a death. Every time mm-hmm. we accept suffering in, in unity with Jesus, that's a death. We're yeah. constantly dying, and there are a number of places where Paul talks about this constant dying to self so that indeed we can be filled to overflowing with Christ. Well, it seems to me that that's exactly what Paul is um, uh, exhorting the Romans in chapter 6 when he speaks about baptism as a, a death to sin and a uh, resurrection to life. And the conclusion that Paul draws out of that that uh, fact of, of our baptism is in, in Romans 6 verse 12, so don't let sin reign in your mortal body so as to obey its lust or its desires. In other words, live the resurrection life, the life in which you're being filled by the Spirit, which the heavenly life of Christ is being communicated to you, and it's that life that ought to prevail within us. Now, because of our sinful, our nature being affected by original sin, we we have those that old nature wanting to reassert itself again. That's exactly what the devil wants, of course, is to... He, he, he likes to be behind the scenes. He doesn't like to come out and say, hey, I'm the devil, I'm, I'm going to take you away from God. He uses that weakness within us. And he, whatever it may be, uh, whatever weaknesses people have, uh, he uses that weakness to draw us away from God. So the answer is exactly in Paul's example. He was always a vigilant man. He was always on guard against being drawn away from God through this sinful nature. Which would affirm what Paul's going to say here in verse 58 at the end of this section. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Just as you said mm-hmm. from your, your quotes earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, the pummels his body, you know. Mm-hmm. that he may not be disqualified. So it's a constant walking with Christ in obedience with Christ. Um, Ephesians says, put off the old, put on the new. Colossians, put off the old, put on yeah. the new. That's a daily walk with Jesus Christ. With ahead of us, the mystery of this hope. Now, as we've been doing this, Ken, it reminded me of the readings in the, the office of readings. And I don't have it in front of me. Uh, it's back at home. But I, I, I know that you were able to grab it in your library because it seems to me that this recent quote in the Office of Readings, which I still think is the greatest collection of the early church writings that available to us is the daily readings from the Office of Readings that the church gives us. But yeah. this wonderful, mysterious um, reality of what this resurrection life will be in Christ, Basil talks about it in one of his letters. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in his uh, short treatise on the Holy Spirit, uh, St. Basil the Great, by the way, he was the Bishop of Caesarea in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 4th century. And uh, he uh, was born in 330 uh, B, uh, A.D. I, I always like to point out, by the way, that Basil had, had a younger brother named Gregory, who became Gregory of Nyssa. And he had another younger brother named Peter, who became the Bishop of Sebastia. And they had a sister who excelled all the brothers in holiness. Her <laughs> name was Macrina. Right? And in fact, Basil gives and Gregory give homilies on, this, on the death of their sister. Um, you know, these, Ken, I was thinking, the, you know, we talk about the great generation, you know, in, uh, of those that lived during World War II, and they were indeed great heroes. But that fourth century was a great generation. Well, it was. <laughs> I mean, it was there, but then they were in, they were in Asia Minor. You had uh, St. John Chrysostom over in Antioch, who became the Patriarch of Constantinople. You had Jerome. You had Augustine, who was a young man during that time. Uh, and, you know, Paulinus of Nola. I mean, there was just a whole slew of great saints during Even Chromatius of Aquileia. He's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's exactly <laughs> another another example. Um, and And so... Now, by the way, you haven't. There's, there's, there's a point hiding in there that what you said. <clears throat> the fourth century was not an easy century. It wasn't because of the heresy of Her- Arianism, and that prevailed, or not prevailed, but it it persisted, yeah. uh, even in spite of the Council of Nicaea. So that they had to re- try to resolve the lingering problems at the Council of Constantinople in 381, which Gregory of Nyssa attended. So did Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, now, by the way, so here's in this great time of turmoil of the church, and yet, what do you get? You get these great saints yeah. that emerge from it. Yeah. So I hope that we today won't be discouraged by the times in which we live. Now, any thinking Christian that looks around today and says, you know, there's an awful lot of toxicity in our culture, <laughs> right? moral and cultural toxicity. But we shouldn't let that discourage us because we can be saints in the midst of it. And that's what will save the church and the world. Well, Basil was one of those. He was a, a, a man of enormous holiness. And uh, Basil himself, you know, he, he said, I'm not a great scholar. I'm not a great mystic the way that my younger brother is. He was, in fact, a great administrator. He had gifts of leadership, uh, which I admire in people because I, I don't have them myself. But when I see them in others, I, I just uh, have a, a great admiration for them. And yet when he sat down to write, he wrote with as much depth of uh, mystical insight as his younger brother or any number of other writers during that time. In this treatise on the Holy Spirit that you've pointed us to, uh, Marcus, Basil, and this, by the way, for those that may be familiar with the Liturgy of the Hours, the Daily Office, this is the reading for today, Tuesday, the seventh week of Easter. Um, he talks about the Holy Spirit as raising our our eyes and our sights to heaven the guide of the steps of the week. He brings us to perfection. But then this section that's being quoted here in the daily office, um, I'd like to read just the last paragraph because it's very profound. He says, From the Spirit, that is from the Holy Spirit, comes a foreknowledge of the future, understanding of the mysteries of faith, insight into the hidden meaning of Scripture, and other special gifts. Through the Spirit, we become citizens of heaven, 
We are admitted to the company of the angels. We enter into eternal happiness and abide in God. Through the Spirit we acquire a likeness to God. Indeed, we attain what is beyond our most sublime aspirations. We become God. (laughs) Isn't that an amazing statement? It is an amazing statement. And apart from revelation, the, the full deposit of the faith, people can take what he said and run with it in the wrong direction. Yeah, you know, and he's not saying, and, and, and you're, you're right here, we've got to take the whole context of the church. The church has always emphasized that God alone is God. We are human. We don't become, we don't become God literally. But what he's doing is he's using uh, language in a poetic way, right? Which means that you have to back off the literalness of it a little bit. And you have to say, okay, he's describing something real, but the only language that we have to describe it as is F. As if to say, well, we're becoming God, you know. Well, I become, we become one with our spouses in marriage. And in a very sort of real way, we become our spouses, don't we? Because we begin to act like them. They begin to act like us. I mean, you live around people, they rub off on you and so forth. But still we realize, well, I'm, I'm Ken and my wife Sharon is Sharon. And your wife is your wife and, you're, and you, you're, you are you. Uh, we don't become God in the literal sense. But what he's talking about is that the Spirit so unites us to God so deeply in our very nature that it is as if we were God. There, you see. And that's exactly, I think, he's picking up on St. Peter's famous statement in Second Peter uh, yeah, let, 1, 4. In fact, let me read that uh, beginning yeah. with from 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Yeah, yeah. That 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 theme is pervasive in the church fathers, both East, like Basil, and West, like Crematius of Aquileia, or Augustine, or St. Peter Chrysologus uh, about a generation later. The, the point is that salvation is this process that, com- that uh, repeatedly and increasingly divinizes us, makes us like a god. And that's why the the process of salvation is never quite complete in this life. I mean, it may be in a few people like Mother Teresa or St. John Paul II, but, you know, maybe they got very close to it. But it's a process of being divinized, of becoming partakers of the divine nature. And that's why um, it, we've, we find it as Catholics presumptuous to think that we know for the absolute metaphysical certainty that we're going to heaven because we don't even know our own state of being before God. We have to we have to trust God. We have to hope in his mercy always. And there's the beautiful message of the Christian faith. It's not that we're better than other people, um, even though objectively that may in some ways be true in the sense of we're holier and some Catholics are holier than others. But what I mean is it's that even no matter how holy you are, you still are saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Because the greatest posture we can take before God is one of asking for grace and mercy. Because that's the people that he's the, the closest to. Throughout this whole chapter, what he's drawing us to is our knees. 
He's drawing us yeah, to humility. Yeah. He's drawing us to, even in this particular section, you know, we're, we're using our senses to look at the world and we're trying to understand a world that's beyond our imagination. That's the limitations. Yeah. So when we even look at our own world and recognize, that especially in their day and age, they, your average person couldn't understand the difference between the flesh of man or of animals or of birds or of fish. I mean, even that is beyond our ability fully. Then how can we expect to understand the wonderful resurrected reality we will have one day when we're in the presence of God? So what are we to do now? Well, instead of spending all our time trying to figure all this stuff out, which is beyond us, he is saying in verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, abounding yeah. in the work of the Lord. Instead of being inward focused, to be outward focused, doing the work of the Lord in the lives of other people, drawing them to Christ so that they too may have the option of experiencing eternal resurrection. Well, you know, St. Benedict uh, gives the advice in his uh, rule for the Benedictine monks. He says uh, that when you begin any new work, be sure to uh, commit it to God in prayer. In other words, don't don't just think you're going to be able to do this on your own. I think that's what Paul is saying here in verse 58, that um, you can know at the very end, you can know that your labor is not in vain. If we place conscious, self-consciously place our labor uh, be it be it uh, you know evangelization through the radio, or be it changing diapers of a, of a baby infant, you know, or or maybe it's uh, just doing very mundane work. No matter what it is, if it's if it's in the Lord, that is to say, if we commit it to God through prayer, then it's not going to be in vain. And what Paul is saying here is he is <clears throat> he is countering, you might say, the final temptation. What is the final, the worst temptation of all? And that is just to give up. No matter how many times we fall and make moral choices that are bad, we can always get up and go back to Christ. Paul is saying that's the greatest failure of all, is to not get up and go back to Christ. All right. Thanks, Ken. I mean, this is the challenge that Paul was giving those Corinthian Christians 2,000 years ago. And his, the word is alive. It is, as Paul says himself, uh, a two-edged sword alive now, challenging us to live this out. And so that's our challenge to you as we together seek to follow Christ, seek to, as Paul says, be steadfast, immovable. We can do that by grace. We do it through the sacraments as we're empowered to be in union with him, union with each other, union with Christ as we experience his blessing. God bless. We'll see you next week.